How many people are familiar with, let's see if we get, uh, get us up on the screen. One more. These guys. NASA. Got it? Uh, NASA. These are the space people. Um, it, was really, it was amazing. Where, where I lived in Russia was, was St. Petersburg, and there was a military academy there. And there's, there's nine different military branches in Russia. There, there's internal army, there's external army, there's KGB, there's Air Force, there's rockets, there's tanks, there's all sorts of things. But one of the military branches, and it's a military branch, is actually the space forces. And, uh, and it's a branch. You, you have your own uniform and all of that, and you're dealing with space defense. And so who knows what sort of crazy Cold War spy stuff they had in mind, but I had actual friends, and their literal name in Russian were space cadets. And so you've heard people being space cadets. There's an academy in St. Petersburg, and there's literal space cadets. Our version is NASA. And, and so with astronauts and cosmonauts kind of dueling it out over who's going to have Cold War superiority, NASA really got a lot of funding, a lot of publicity, a great organization. And so seeing NASA portrayed in the movies, seeing NASA portrayed in the papers, uh, knowing people trying to maybe get into the program, we have this amazing view of astronauts in space and excitement. That is the ultimate challenge. I mean, you're going into space. You're going to the moon. I mean, this is, this is phenomenal stuff. And so going into a place with so much danger, so much risk, so many unknowns, you're dependent on so many people, you need heroes. You need the hardcore people. You need people who have, uh, who are the best of the best of the best. And that's the image we have of NASA. Like you could be uber military or, or uber government or whatever, but I don't know whether you're going to get into NASA because they only take the best. And so um, the, it was presented that you'd think the best and the brightest is what NASA looks for uh, when they're recruiting. But the reality between, behind NASA's recruiting is very different from what you might expect. You see, NASA does not take people that have flawless records. They don't take people that have had unbroken chain of of success uh, in their life. This is actually closer to the people that NASA would would look like. This is, these are, never mind, it's from a movie, Armageddon. Don't get too worked up about it. Um, Yeah, that would be like the Earth's greatest hope kind of thing. But what NASA does is they look for people that have had serious obstacles in their life. They look for people that in their career, there have been setbacks, there have been failures, there have been bad decisions, there have been things that have just happened, and and it went very different. And then they look at what is the capacity of this person to overcome, to keep on pressing, to overcome the disappointment. You see, because what they found is if they just filled up the space station or the, the, the rockets or, or um, space shuttle or, or whatever's going on, it's getting a little too far here, with the best and the brightest, those people were, were loose cannons. Because the people that were never challenged, what they found is even though they had a flawless record and you think they're at the top of their class, it turns out they probably weren't being challenged. They weren't operating at the top of their potential. It was easy for them. They had good natural ability. They, had, they were born into privilege. They had opportunities, whatever it might be. But the strengths that they had in, in walking into this, this storied life and career, uh, it never played out. Because in space, stuff happens. 
Like, you could just be hanging out with George Clooney or Sandra Bullock fixing the International Space Station. Minding your own business. You're at the top of your career. You know, top of your class. Straight A's. Everybody loves you. And this is your career path. But you're just hanging out, having a conversation. And all of a sudden, ah, 30,000 miles an hour, Russian space stations. Ah! And everything, everything goes, goes sideways. Now, this is our family Sunday. So, kids, how many people want to be an astronaut? I'm just kidding. This stuff never happens in space. It's just a movie. Don't worry about it. Totally great career choice. Be an astronaut. It's wonderful. Make the box of Wheaties. Yeah, it's just movies. Stuff happens all the time. NASA spends most of its budget making plans, but they realize as soon as liftoff happens, and even before, plans go out the window. One thing changes, it changes everything. So they don't want untested people. They don't want people that have just looked good and smelled good, because is that the reality, or have they just never challenged themselves? You see, because the best and the brightest, they tend to, they tend to peter out when it's chaos, when it's unpredictable, when they're out of their element. And so what NASA does is they go to great length to find the lesser knowns, the people that nobody had heard of, the people that may have gotten derailed in their careers or had uh, a catastrophic failure, and how did they come back? How did they put one foot in front of the other? How did they live their lives in light of no longer being the best and the brightest and the coolest that everybody wanted? And those are the people that are proven quantities. Those are the people that when the chips are down, when it goes sideways, when it's unfair, when they've been betrayed, when other people have done them wrong, they can still put one foot in front of the other and get on with it. And that is real. All the other stuff with the accolades and and what other people think, maybe that's real, maybe that's not. We don't know. People are like tea bags. You don't see what they're made of until they're put into hot water, right? And as the English say, you don't want to be Fortnite tea. Too weak to drink. I know it kills overseas. It doesn't make sense here. I just like saying Fortnite. In a fortnight, it'll be two weeks from now. Okay, we're looking at unlikely followers. Anyone remember the message last week? Last week was the betrayal. Last week was crucify him. Last week was the best and the brightest, the top of the class, the Pharisees, the experts of the law, the ones that everyone wanted to be. This is how Jewish society worked. You took all the kids... And, and they all went to school. And the, the rabbis would come and they would say, see who had the aptitude. And the ones that were selected, they got to go to Hebrew school. And then the next year, only the best students got to continue. And this went on year after year after year till there was just a handful of people left. And so you were with all your friends and you're going to be rabbis and you're going to be like the leaders. Everyone's looking for you and dad's proud and the uncle and oh my boy. And then you get kicked out of class. You didn't measure up. You didn't make the football team. You failed the test. You're not going to where you want it to go. And, and people would get kicked out every year. You know what those kids did? The family business. And so the only hope of getting out of the family business, the only hope of having a different uh, way that people looked at you was to go to Hebrew school. So all the people that weren't rabbis were all the failures that couldn't measure up, that didn't have the aptitude, that didn't have the opportunity. And they looked up jealously to the leaders. And so the leaders had this place where, man, I, if I was only better, I could have been like them. And the leaders of Israel did not 
lose any opportunities to remind people of that daily. We are better. We do what right. We, 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 we have the control. So all the way through the book of John, we have these experts, the people we look up to, and we see that they failed horribly. But then we have the disciples. The disciples were the ones that didn't measure up. They couldn't go to Hebrew school. All they could do was their family's business. They were fishermen. And Jesus says, you're just the people I want because you've had setbacks. Because you didn't get what you wanted. Because it wasn't easy for you. You were the outcast. You didn't measure up. You were just going to be like everyone else doing the family business. But it's real. And those are the people that, that I can work with. And so then we have the disciples. The people who get a second chance to walk with a master. To have a life that's very different. But throughout the book of John, we have these bookends. We have the people that thought they had arrived already and they earned it and God owes me. And they never changed. And they put up walls around them. Those were the Pharisees. And then we have the people that were given a second chance. No, it can be different. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, you're great. You're wonderful. Let's go save the world. Woo! Yeah! Yeah, Jesus! Woo! And there's an empty stage and people are going, well, what, what, what's going on with that? You see, because the other end of the spectrum were, see, these people were the ones that didn't move one bit because they'd done it all themselves. And, you know, God owes me. I, I want some payback. These people here, they moved out too fast. They kept running ahead of God, kept running ahead of what God was telling them. I'm going to set you free here. Whoa, freedom. Whoa, 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 whoa. Get back. Get back here. Get back. Get easy there, cowboy. Okay. All right, you got to learn to crawl before you can run, okay? And so with the disciples, he was trying to pull them back. With the Pharisees, he was trying to push them off center because they were the center. And he wanted them to fall so they'd look up and see their name to God. But what happened was they filled themselves with so much Bible, their heads just got big till they were... You know, it's uh, too earthly minded to be of heavenly good. Yeah. There's a clip somewhere around here. Just note to self, I lost it. Maybe we need it. I, I don't know. That's what happened to it. Okay, so. Oh, yeah, the Bible. That's where we were. Okay. So we have the crucifixion narrative last week, right? And John is just, it's like he's still traumatized 40, 50 years later when he's writing this. He's still traumatized by it. So it's a very... Very cold, very minimal account of the brutality that happened. And we have the Pharisees not moving. We have the disciples. I'll die for you, Lord. I'll never betray you. Surely not me. All running ahead of Jesus still. See, Jesus was at the cross. And that's where he wanted his people. And they kept running. And so both groups were in the wrong place. Throughout the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in one of two extremes. And so there's the crucifixion. He breathed his last, into your hands, my Father, I commend my spirit. And it was dark. Darkness came over the whole land. A deep darkness. And people were afraid. The centurion said, surely this man was innocent, was righteous, was the son of God. The temple curtain that had separated God from man. This huge three-inch thick curtain ripped top to bottom. God did that. There is now, it's different. There's an access. There's a way. And then silence. Now we're going to pick up the narrative. Who were the heroes? Who was, who was the idealized NASA, the movie star NASA? 
Well, people would think it was the Pharisees, the experts. They knew the word of God better than all of us put together. But they used it to justify themselves. They didn't move one bit. As Christians, as evangelicals, we've heard these stories. Our heroes would be the disciples. They're the ones like us that turn the world upside down with a ragtag faith and Jesus. But the disciples, again, were nowhere to be found, with a few exceptions. And so, Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb. All bets are off. People are confused. It's dark. They're hopeless. And we have four unlikely followers now that make the scene the first people mentioned. We're going to have two unlikely followers from the Pharisees who didn't stay in place, who, who began justifying their position with their knowledge, with their ability, with their goodness, with their acts and works. But we're going to have two unlikely followers who at great risk come out of the darkness and step into the light and are instrumental in salvation history. And then we have one of the most worldly people and we have the most, next to Judas, um, disparaged, hated upon disciple. And we have these people coming out of the woodwork. Because it isn't those that just get it right and are unchallenged. And it isn't those that just have the get it factor and run ahead. But where God is at work is in the middle. Where the next thing he asks us to do is the next step. To be available. To be open. To look up. To engage. It isn't the the total victory and hitting it out of the park. Either way. You see, these extremes were seeing their lives in the ultimate absolute. That I have to be this kind of person. They were confusing their role and their identity. Big mistake to do that. These guys weren't going to be Pharisees their whole life. That was a job. And then who are they? They were children of the living God, but they never stepped into that role. So God meets people that are living their own lives, that are taking hits, that bleed, that feel. Because the next step is the only step that God would have us make. Let's look at four of those steps that people took right now. I think we might have some battery issues. Okay. Our expectations of ourselves are very different than God's. See if we can go back there. Yeah. Expectations of ourselves are very different than God's. What do you feel that God expects from you? How do you know you're okay with God? Do you feel if you get up in the morning, you have a good devotional? I'm I'm not a daily devotional person. I'm just wired differently. Find whatever works for you and roll with it. But um, do you feel that, man, I got out of bed. I I overslept. I had to get to school. I had to get to work. I'm, I'm rushing. I didn't have time to pray. I didn't have time to read the Bible. Do you feel if that's the case somehow, it's going to go worse for you today? God's not going to be there for you. You haven't plugged in. You haven't earned it. You haven't done the necessary thing to meet God. See, our expectations of of what God is doing is very different. And we could talk about this. We're just going to read it. And then I'm going to talk about it. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Okay, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the Council of Seventy, the Jewish leaders. Whenever you hear Jewish leaders, Joseph of Arimathea is in that group. These are the 70 that ruled Israel under, under Rome. And so where was Joseph of Arimathea, the disciple of Jesus, when he was being condemned? Where was Joseph of Arimathea when all the leaders were screaming, crucify, crucify? 
or when they were whipping the crowd up into a frenzy, or when they were falsely accusing Christ, or when they were corroborating with an enemy, or when they were lying and denying their faith, we have no king but Caesar. Where was Joseph of Arimathea standing up for Jesus as a radical disciple then? He was afraid. He was silent. Maybe he was afraid for his family. Maybe he was afraid for his life. Maybe he was afraid for prestige. Maybe he was afraid what others would think of him, think he's crazy. He'd worked long and hard for this position. This was as far as you could go. Whole world. We don't know what his motivation was, but it just says he was afraid he was a secret disciple. What word do you focus on? Secret, afraid, or disciple? Which word do you think God focuses on? Secret, afraid, or disciple? Disciple, absolutely. Secret, that's circumstantial. Afraid, that's dispositional. God's good for those two. That's the next step. The very next step for Joseph was stepping through his fear. And when was the time to do that? And how was that going to play out? That was, jo- that was Joseph stepping into his faith. And this is where he steps into his faith. Now, you have to remember, Jesus was crucified as a criminal, as a seditionist. It was the worst crime you could be punished for. The fact that you're crucified meant you're not a Roman citizen, you have no rights, you're a threat to the state, and anyone associated with this person is now liable. Now, the family would typically come and ask for a body to be taken off of, uh, off of the cross or ask for the body back. But there's no way this is going to happen. Jesus' brothers are not going to go to Pilate. They can't even get to Pilate. None of the relatives have access to anybody who's going to grant the body. There's only one way that body's coming down. Because in Roman law is that the body has to be left on the cross for the vultures. That the family members have to see this horrible spectacle as though they haven't been traumatized enough. And, and it stays up there as a reminder for others, Right? And you thought your teachers were harsh at school, right? Um, that, that was a scare tactic for everybody. And, and, uh, and so, going right across, almost a slap in the face, Joseph uses his power. He uses his prestige. He uses all that God has given him to gain access to Pilate. He gets access, and then he says, I like the body of Jesus. Now, the Jews asked that bodies would be taken down so that, they, um, so that the Passover, they wouldn't be um, violated, that they could, they could do the God stuff. So they had to get the body down. Typically, the body, if it is granted at all, would be thrown in a big nameless pit. And again, the Jews just freak out over all this stuff. How could this be? Everybody, just, they can't imagine how it's going to come together. So Joseph says, I got this. He steps into his faith. He says, I would like his body. He identifies, not with a glorious Christ, not with a healing Christ, not with a miracle Christ, not with a teacher Christ, not with a hopeful Christ, but he identifies with a condemned Christ, with a criminal. And he gets his body down, and he takes it away. He actually stands in Scripture. One of the greatest prophecies of who Jesus is is found in Isaiah. It's called the suffering servant. And rather than this man who's going to use his power to fix my life the way I want, he's a man who understands my heart, who understands when I cry, who understands my loneliness, who understands my failures and shortcomings because he has walked where I walked, bled where I bled, been betrayed, been isolated, been abandoned in ways that we have. And so he's so, so much more close. And this prophecy about the kind of God that we need and crave, the friend who is closer than any friend we could imagine, it ends with this, and his grave was found among the wealthy. 
which will never happen for somebody who's crucified, ever, 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 ever. And so this is just a miracle that he, this, the right timing, the right everything, that he was able to bring Jesus into the tomb, which was absolutely bound up in the witness of the resurrection. If he'd just been thrown in a nameless grave, would have been really difficult, uh, you know, guarding and all of that. So that it was unmistakable that he was died, that he, he raised. Um, this is how it played out. He was accompanied by a man named Nicodemus, a man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Anybody here watch Nick at night? This is the original. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds you know why they would put spices on dead bodies? Because they smelled. Ah! And it wasn't a mummification thing. This wasn't Egyptian, you know, doing the whole, you know, funky, bizarre, you know, afterlife. This was simply, we want to come and be with the person and celebrate and grieve. And we want to do this for a week. And it gets kind of, it's a hot climate. And so we're going to put all these um, aromatic resins and stuff so it smells nice. Joseph was rich. He said, man, I'm a day late and a dollar short. My next step was to stick my neck out and identify with Jesus. I got the body back. What can I do for the Lord now? Maybe it's too late. Maybe it isn't. So he just gives this ridiculous sum of money and has all of these. uh, I mean, this is a huge offering for him. And this is something typically slaves would do or women who are very low in society would do. But this leader now has taken the position of a slave. And he's wrapping a dead body. Wait a minute. Wasn't he a leader of Israel? Isn't he a Pharisee? Doesn't he know that when you touch a dead body, you defile yourself? Weren't all of the Pharisees saying, we're not even going to enter the home of Pilate so that we can keep all the rules and, um, and eat the Passover? And here's Joseph of Arimathea holding a dead body and being gentle with it and carrying it into this tomb and cradling it and being just spices and this, this, this intimate interaction with the criminal that he identified with. And I think he died and rose as well. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. The place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. The word for garden there isn't like garden like this size room. It'd be like monster orchard. Think of Brentwood before the boom. Like how many people go out fruit picking in Brentwood? It would be sort of, anybody? Nobody? Okay, close your eyes and think of a Google picture of an undeveloped farm country. Yeah, that, that's this. So there's orchards for like acres and acres and acres and acres of orchard. That's what they mean by garden. Okay, so it's monster because there's a gardener that has to care for it. And in the garden was a new tomb which no one had ever been laid. You see, you could not put the body of a condemned person in a tomb with anyone else because it would defile all the bodies. So people had these monster family tombs, but no way are they putting a crucified person in there because that wrecks it for everybody in the resurrection. So Jesus had no place. But he was found amongst the rich because God had prepared from the get-go Joseph and Nicodemus that as they step out. Notice it said Nick at night, right? Nicodemus who had accompanied him at night. Throughout the book of John we have it was night when no one can work, when the deeds happen, when Jesus is arrested. It's night when Judas went out. It was night when Nicodemus came. And now we have Nicodemus stepping out of the night as it's getting darker and identifying with the Lord. Let's just keep rolling on. Two unlikely disciples. Okay. Now Mary, this is Mary Magdalene. There's a whole bunch of Marys in the Bible, right? You figure that out? They only had like three women's names in the Bible. 
So like one-third of everyone's Mary. This is Mary Magdalene. Um, this is somebody who uh, was said was delivered from seven demons. I don't know what you're up to to have seven demons in you, oppressing you, controlling you, dominating you. But the backstory story is that's a, that's a really vulnerable, hurt, used life. And so this person was a slave in a hundred different ways, used and abused in a hundred different ways. The outcast of the outcast, the outcast of society. Jesus set her free, and she was so grateful. This is not the Mary who was crying and all of that. That was the sister of Martha. My opinion, we'll, we talked about that. But this is somebody who was so grateful. The world looked on this person as well, she was invisible. She, she couldn't even hope to eat Passover with somebody. She's that defiled. Who's the first person on the scene in the morning? Who's the first person identifying with the Lord? The one who's most grateful. You've been forgiven much. You love much. And so even though the disciples had said they were afraid, they were hiding in the room, they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Mary brazenly goes, doesn't matter what the risk is, and wants to be with her Lord. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. How do you think Jesus said that? Do you think he was like, Mary, come on, come on, get with the program here. Mary, come, seriously? Dude, you've been with me all this time, you don't recognize my voice? It's Jesus here. Come on, Mary, come on. Do you think he was like that with her? It's just the love, Mary. Because the translation here, which means teacher, Rabboni, it's actually, uh, it's funny, John, silly guy. Um, it's my, my teacher. It, it's affectionate. My teacher, my teacher. Um, that's what she said. My teacher. Not just teacher, not just honored title. Oh, good sir. Oh, Lord. Oh, right, Reverend, you know, Hufflepuff. This is my teacher. And she saw him. And she did what anyone would do in that scene. You thought somebody was dead. They came back to life. Your heart was ripped out. It's just been put back. You know what she did? <gasps> Jesus! Oh, Jesus! Oh, Jesus! I can't believe it's you. I can't believe it's you. Because in the Eastern world, there was this sign of protestation. Like, we shake hands. Hey, pleased to meet you. Uh, you know, there, there's bowing, you know, Amistay, or you can go, you know, southeast, you know, you can bow more, or martial arts, never take your eyes off of the person. You know, there, there's lots of ways of greeting, right? But in the East, it's this. You, you, would, you would do this, or you would bow like this. Or if it's royalty, you would bow low like this. This is not, this is just, yo, what's up? But, you know, it's cultural. So she does that, and she just dives you know, ankle biter, tackles him, just holding on to him like this. And, and she just isn't going to let go. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So we have this amazing, amazing scene. And this is really, this is very complicated I mean, John's very simple Greek. This is really complicated. The sense of it is simply this. It's not, he's not saying, you can't touch me because I'm this 
in between heavenly and heaven and earth, immaterial spirit being, and you're going to defile me or you're going to mess me up. Or it has none of this voodoo stuff because we're going to see. And uh, spoiler alert: Thomas is the last guy. Uh, stick your hand into my side. So if touchy feely's bad at this point, why is he doing this with Thomas? So that's not the issue. It's not like you know cooties or tag or anything like that. What he's saying is, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm losing some circulation here, man. My foot's going to be asleep, and now it's going to be up all night. But it doesn't matter because I'm eternal now. Um, but Jesus always was. It was a Trinitarian test for you. The, um, the point is, she's holding on to him, and, and he's like, whoa, whoa, Mary, Mary, easy, easy there. It's not like I'm ascending right now. It's not like, you know, you got to kind of, you know, hold me down kind of thing. Um, so, so I'm around. Okay, let's just, okay, okay, come on, come on. Pry the fingers off. We're cool. What you need to do right now, share the good news. Who is the first evangelist? Mary Magdalene, first one, the risen Christ appears to. In the other Gospels, it says, go tell the brothers and Peter. Make sure he knows. Remember, I prayed for him. He's still part of the plan. Okay, include him. So Mary, you're going to be instrumental in what God's doing in Peter and church and all that stuff. So first evangelist is a woman, an outcast, a slave, an invisible person in society. Not the experts that have all the degrees in the law. Not the disciples that Jesus handpicked and they kept running ahead. But this unbelievable outcast who had an unbelievable affection and passion for Christ and wouldn't let anything, not laws, not propriety, not custom, not expectations, not structures, not anything get in the way between her and God. And Jesus is feeling it right now. That is unbelievable. Jesus, did, did he skip over to the disciples and go to Paul? Did he just lay it out to Peter? Did, did he, he pick the other disciples? Did he show up to the Pharisees? Ha ha, told you so, what now? Not at all. He goes where wanted. And so the very next person who wanted him, in a way that had the expectation, in a way that was intimate, in a way that was continuous, was the next step that Mary So I'm going to do what I know. I don't know what to do, so I do what I know. All right. On that note. Interesting. I'm ascending to my father, not I've risen from the dead. Why does Jesus say that? Because it's all bound up in one act. It's not just saving us from our death. It's bringing us into being able to live our life. And so it's the whole thing. She said, I have seen the Lord. Did the men believe her? No, because the witness of a woman didn't count. Did that get in the way of Jesus using her anyway? Not at all. Guys, get with the program. Okay? And now we have our final one. This is going to mess you up. On the, on the evening... Of the first day of the week when the disciples were together were the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Wait a minute. Why is it okay for them to be afraid of the Jewish leaders but not Joseph of Arimathea? God meets us where we're at, not where we should be. And that's okay because that's the next step. You see, the next step isn't the impossible one that's an idealization that's too far for us to make. The next step is the very next step and God will always meet us there. When the disciples were together out of fear, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which is ironic because they probably all just flipped out like you wouldn't believe, right? Peace be with you. Oh, Jesus! Jesus! Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands in the side. You don't believe me? Here, give me some M&Ms. Look, see, it's a party trick. It works. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
understatement of the century. Understatement of the century. Because now all the gospels that they write is, we didn't get what he meant when he said he had to raise from the dead first. We didn't get what he meant. He didn't, don't tell people about this. I got to pull off Easter first. Wait till Easter. Wait till it happens. You'll get it then. It all came together here. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you, present continuous. He is sending us every day. He is sending us. Next step, next person, next conversation, next prayer, next repentance. As the Father sent me, I hear, I say, I see, I do, I feel, I emote. Whatever the Father does, that degree of intimacy, that's why the Spirit is given. That's why this is all coming together. And and he, and he brings it. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Literally, he breathed out. He goes, receive the Holy Spirit. And they received the Holy Spirit. But Thomas wasn't there. And we have Pentecost. So when did the Holy Spirit come upon the church? Was it here in the upper room? Or was it 50-ish, 40-ish days later? It was here. He breathed out and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know what the Greek says? He breathed out and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So either they didn't receive the Holy Spirit or they did receive the Holy Spirit. Why do we totally blow through this? And the first time the Holy Spirit appears in mass in everybody, according to Scripture, is Acts chapter 2, and it's Pentecost. It's raining fire, hallelujah, and it's their power and witnesses into the world. Because we associate it with the fireworks. We associate it with the gifts rather than the fruit. The fruit is hard work. The fruit is over time. The fruit is frustrating. The fruit you can't control like you'd like it to. The gifts you can use. And so, whereas God was throwing his church out into the world at Pentecost, which was absolutely the endowment of power for the speaking in tongues, that all the people that were gathered there for pilgrimage could hear about God in their heart language. That's what he was doing. Remain in Jerusalem to receive power on high, to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then there's a persecution, and he sent them to the ends of the earth. That was the plan. But the Holy Spirit is not just about power to be witness, although it will always redound in that the more we're appropriating it. But it's about intimacy. It is good that I go away, that you would receive my spirit, that all this stuff that you're trying to either run away from or stay in place because you've established and invested, it can just be about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And that comes about in intimacy. I'm with my friends. Peace be with you. Receive my spirit. It is now time. Now, it's going to be activated. Now, it's going to blow you guys away what, what, what this means and how this is going to work out. But I'm not just giving you this powerful alien weapon. Gee, I wonder how this blaster works. <laughs> you know, like, like there's this gift. I'm just going to start, you know, just blowing the gospel out on people. It's a relationship. It's intimacy. It's familiarity. This is how the Spirit feels. This is what the Spirit is saying. This is what the Spirit is doing in your heart and your heart. And this is how we can connect to that. And so there's this intimate giving of the Holy Spirit and that continued um, filling of the Spirit for power we see through the rest of the book of Acts. The first one being the thunderclap at Pentecost. Moving right along to last one. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus. Didymus means twin. We have no idea what's up with his brother. But anyway, Thomas, one of the twins. Um, One of the 12 was not with the disciples. So did he not get the Holy Spirit? Think about that. 
The answer is no, but think about that. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in his side, where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, what's, what's, Tom, what's doubting Thomas's first name? His mama didn't name him Doubting. Yeah, good, yeah. I know it's an old joke. We think of him as Doubting Thomas, right? How would, how would you like to be known as Bedwetter Bill? <laughs> uh, but I was pastor at Bethel. I went to school. I was a missionary. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, you, you did those things too. But, and then Bedwetter Bill said, and then I heard Bedwetter Bill, Bedwetter Bill, you know. You know, you're like, one time, why is this my nickname? One time, I doubt it once. And so it's unfortunate he gets stuck with this. But here's, here's the crazy double standard. Thomas said what the others were thinking and what Jesus met them at. Unless I touch and see, I saw him die from a distance, but I saw him die. And unless I see, I won't be convinced. But the other disciples were in the same place. Jesus showed up. They freaked out. Peace be with you. And it said, look, guys, I I know this is going to be hard. Here, come here. Here, feel this. Feel this. So Thomas was no different from the other disciples. He just had the courage to say what everyone else was thinking and where Jesus had already met them. So not a problem. Um. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, which is hilarious. This is like a total breaking and entering, and his first thing he says, Peace be with you. He says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my... It's almost as though Jesus was in the room when Thomas said that, right? Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be all of us. So first off, that's a great encouragement to us. That we all believe for our own reasons. You don't believe for my reasons. I don't believe for your reasons. God meets us intimately, personally, the next step. Transaction of the heart, transaction of the mind, transaction of the whole body. Who we are, who is God, next step. Blessed are those who have not had incontrovertible proof, which really beyond the resurrected Christ, I I don't know what's going to go into that category. There's always another explanation. So we need to believe in relationship. But where Thomas gets a bad rap, it's like he's a second-class citizen. It's like somehow the other disciples believed, and they didn't get the show and tell that Thomas did, even though they did. And so it said, stop doubting and believe. The sense is stop having a a, a heart that's predisposed to being a cynic, to to having to prove everything with evidence, because that's only going to get you so far, like the Pharisees, and then you're going to be stuck. And so it's got to be, it's not a blind leap of faith. It's not, so I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish it were true. Um, I, I have a hard time with Santa Claus. Because I'm a true believer. I'm the most credulous person, or I used to be the most credulous person. And my parents, that was like the magical time in their life where, when, when it was just happy memories. So they would go overboard with Santa Claus and all these stories. I was an evangelist for Santa Claus as a little kid in grammar school. And I had these elaborate theories of how they're with a floating ice shelf that could support a city. And, you know, there's Aurora Borealis, maybe is why you couldn't see. Now, I'm working every theory of all the, all the counter evidence to prove Santa Claus. And then... Last year when I found out there wasn't a Santa Claus, you can imagine how devastated I was that I built this entire faith upon something. Yeah. 
Well, from that experience early on, I see how easy it is to build a faith on just about anything, no matter how implausible it is. So I am a cynic like Thomas, that I doubt, I question, I wonder, I second-guess myself all the time. And this is such a freeing statement because it's not saying have a better faith. It's not saying do it right. But it's saying you can hold on to one of two things, your certainty or me. But if you're holding on to me, you're not going to be certain. And if you're holding on to you, <laughs> that's all you're going to have and nothing more. And, and, and he meets us in the next step. He's not saying the blind faith, we're, we're, we're not there yet. And so with Thomas, it's the natural next step. Here's, here's the uh, postscript to the story of Thomas. Who was the most successful evangelist, church planner, missionary in the entire New Testament church, as far as church history, history can tell us? The trick answer would be Paul, wrote, wrote a third of the Bible, planted all these churches, right? Not even remotely close. Thomas, not even a close second, planted more churches, baptized more people, preached the gospel more widely, took the word of God further than anyone. Um, in AD 49, he went to Punjab. That's India, right? This is where the Sikhs are from. Seek and you will find. Jesus said that, so he goes to seek the Sikhs. I know it's an anachronism, but it's still funny. And, um, and he took a, a Hebrew copy or Aramaic copy of the Gospel of Matthew. So he got the early version and, uh, and, and evangelized. Church records are a little spotty, but upwards of 300,000 people heard the gospel. Three kings were converted. Three whole nations became Christianized. Through his efforts, the first Christian nation on the planet, Armenia, was founded in 301. Um, he led so many people to Christ. Southern India now has churches called Thomist churches that trace their founding all the way back to him in the 60s and 70s uh, A.D., um, he went over to what's now called Myanmar, what used to be called Burma, and preached the gospel there. He returned to India, and then because of the Brahmin priests who were kind of disenfranchised in the, in the villages and cities because so many people came to Christ, he was praying in tombs as he used to do every, every day. Lord, help me save the living before they're the dead kind of thing. And they ran him through with spears and darts. They, they kind of blocked off the entrance and martyred him. This is Doubting Thomas. This is the unlikely follower. This wasn't Brash Peter, who next week we're going to see has the most beautiful restoration. This wasn't the other disciples that were taking care of business. This wasn't the experts of the law that had it locked down who God was and what his word was. But all of the people that were the best and brightest, all the people that had these, these uncheckered careers, the perfect NASA candidates that you would think, where are they? The day Christ dies, they're all gone. Who are the ones ready to take the next step. We have the secret disciple in fear, Joseph of Arimathea, who risks everything now and is absolutely pivotal in the resurrection of Christ. We have Nicodemus, a scholar, a skeptic who came by night, who was trying to maybe a little more open-minded. It said he was seeking the kingdom of God. And now we see him sticking his head out and saying, no, I'm not with these guys. I am a follower. And identifying with the dead Lord, not the glorious Lord. You know, it's real then. We have Mary Magdalene, an invisible outcast of society, lower than low, no hope, no one would give her the time of day. The first evangelist, the first witness of Christ. Christ didn't accidentally, he's like, oh, Mary, whoa. Whoa, sorry, I, I, Peter was supposed to come by here. Um, what do you do? This is awkward. Um, so you want to go uh, tell the other brothers that I'm here? And that was deliberate in eternity. I can't wait to see the look on Mary's face. I can't wait to feel her squeezing the life out of my legs. 
That is, that is going to be awesome for the joy set before him. And then we have Thomas, doubting Thomas, what he's known by. His faith is the same as mine and the same as yours and the same as all the disciples. We all believe for our own reasons, and that was the next step for him. But he wasn't a second-class citizen saying, you need more faith. You need more time. You need more grace. You need more patience. You need more of this. Christ at all didn't say, well, somehow now you're less in the kingdom. Somehow you can only go somewhat as far as the other heroes, but not as far enough. But just like NASA, Jesus saw all of these people had unbelievable setbacks. But what characterized them wasn't their unbroken chain of success that could be circumstance, but what characterized them by they kept getting up and coming toward Jesus. It would cost them their reputation. They didn't care. It it would cost them their livelihood. They didn't care. It would cost them their friends. They didn't care. The next step for them was where is Christ? And if he's a dead man who's a criminal and an outcast, I don't care. I'm walking toward him. And if he's all that for everyone else, that doesn't change my affection whatsoever. So where are you today? Do you feel your heart over time, like mine tends to get very easily, has just been weighed down with more Bible and more Bible and more experience and more sermons and more hope and more prayer meetings and more attendance and more faithfulness to where with the tripod? And we're just stuck in place. The Pharisees didn't want to be like this. They painted themselves in a corner with their own justification. And we do this. It's a prison. Maybe you feel like you're the disciples where Jesus has specifically, with kid gloves, been so gracious and loving and forgiving and has given you so much extra rope and all you've done is made a macrame hammock and kick back. Or all you've done is just run ahead from him and run ahead and run ahead and run ahead. You're that puppy that as soon as you're off the leash and you're thinking, man, why is God still bothering with me? I think this is the most hopeful, hopeful resurrection message that we have. Because God's not looking at our track record and how seamless it is and how how good we look and have it put together and how how nice we smell or what other people think of us. What he's looking at is where have been the setbacks, the hurts, the disappointments, the tunnels of chaos, the confusion. And, And we don't have to look far to find those. And don't worry, we'll generate these in the church if we don't have enough in life. That's just, that's what we do. You're welcome. Because it's people. We get a bunch of sinners and we put them together. What's gonna happen? It's visionable. And God's good for that. And that's his body and he delights in it. Got work to do still. And so this is hopeful in that I'm the disciple that runs ahead. I'm the Pharisee that gets stuck in place. And where I find myself mostly is not in either of these extremes, but in the middle going, well, I can't be them because of my past. And I don't know if I can be them because of how, how I play my future. And what God asks, what he rejoices in is that next step. Be in that Joseph of Arimathea. Be in that Nicodemus. Be in that Mary Magdalene. Be in that Thomas, who God used far greater, far more intimately than we could ever, ever imagine. And it's being available, and it's the next step. That's the ascension of Christ in us. That it's overcoming, and it's reigning. The promises in Revelation Sevenfold, the one who overcomes, the one who endures, the one who overcomes this, the one who sticks it out, the one who perseveres, the one who allows my strength to be strong in you will reign with me, will judge the nations, will judge the angels. So we are in the crucible of God's heart. And what he asks from us is not perfection, is not just the the immediate reckless zealousness, You see, we're told to exemplify the the disciples, but the disciples 
quit first chance they got. I think a much more realistic message is we're called to exemplify the unlikely followers that nobody else saw. And the very next step was crucial in the kingdom of God, was instrumental in showing a loving heart of God, more available to us. And that's how God builds his kingdom in the world. Let's pray. Father, it is a very tired, hackneyed phrase that you go after the last, the least, and the lost that you desire to be there. And it seems strange that with so many awesome, well-put-together, beautiful people, this is the crowd you like to hang out with. But it's the crowd that is most available, the most uninsulated, the most unprotected. And in that vulnerability, there could be intimacy, Father. And I pray whatever might be getting in our way, our fears of failure even, our fears of discovering more of ourselves or you, Uh, the comfort or safety or security of where we are or its investiture, or whatever the situation might be, we may not even know. But help us to see, Father, whatever it is, it's that next step, that immediacy with you, that we would hear your voice when we're trying to put a world ripped apart back together. Peace be with you. That we would hear your calm, (laughs) calm voice helping us to readjust uh, our perspective to be on the same page with you and that you would help either invigorate our heart or to cause it to rest when it's beating too fast to, to really walk and to listen to the cadence of your heart and what you have. One step, one engagement, one conversation, one prayer, run, one repentance, one moment at a time. We thank you that you're real. We thank you that you're immediate. We thank you that you are love and more than enough in Christ's name.